You may notice that you had a insert in your bulletin this morning, and I apologize that on the back page some of the words or some of the letters are kind of cut off. That's my fault. I didn't notice it until it was too late. So I think that you can still try to make out what the words are, but if you'd like, I can give you another copy or email you what that uh, a copy of that, whatever. So that's one of those things that uh, happens when you have a pastor trying to do printing. It doesn't always come out right. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for such a beautiful day that You've given us. Another day of grace. We fully recognize that we live in the devil's world. That is an exceedingly evil place. We have nothing to fear because You have given us protection. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us Your Word. We need to recognize how important Your Word is and how we apply it to all of the circumstances in life. It's so easy to go along with the herd and not think for ourselves. But because of who and what You are and the grace and the freedom that You've given us, we can deliberate from our own conscience and from Your Word the right course of action to take. So we pray that You will help us to focus our full attention upon Your mighty Word this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 13. We won't be having the notes up on the screen this morning. I decided to make a few last-minute changes to my notes, which was in the PowerPoint in the computer, which is where it remains. So we're going to do it the good old-fashioned way today. We're going to actually look at the Bible. And I have a backup with my printed notes, so there will be a little bit of change in the modus operandi. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it, or in some translations it says, He is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and an avenger 
who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. That's as far as we've gotten in our study. And last time we covered that chapter, uh, excuse me, that verse 5, and we looked at a few points. One of the points that is very important to notice in verse 5 is that the conscience factor is there. And the conscience factor means that we don't do anything in life just because everyone else is doing it or because someone just says that this is what we're supposed to do. We're not robots. We just don't answer in a pre-programmed fashion. God has given us free will. He has given us a conscience, and He holds us responsible for the decisions that we make. Therefore, we need to be independent thinkers and base our decisions upon what the Word of God says and what our conscience dictates to us. We saw that there was... Uh, essentially, it's the end result of people who no longer use their conscience, but they think they are to obey every authority all the time. And the, the consequence of that is what you found in Germany at the close of the war. Actually, immediately following the war, we had the Nuremberg trials. And the Nuremberg trials were established to try war criminals. And it was interesting to see that every one of the people who were judged, who went on trial, had the same defense. And that was, uh, I was only doing what I was told. I was only following orders. And for someone who has that mentality, they don't think for themselves, that even if it goes against their conscience, they go ahead and follow orders. That's the end result. And rightfully, they found these people guilty, and most of them were executed. And that sends a message to us. We are responsible, number one, to God and to our conscience. And there are going to be times. You see, in normal times, and in fact, I've told you repeatedly, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, the whole context of that part of Scripture has to do with a government who is functioning properly as a minister or a servant of God for good. And so under, those, under that guideline, or under that context, we are to follow Romans 13. We also noted that not only the people are responsible to God, so are the leaders. We are all responsible to God. Then we noted that actually in our judicial system, we have three votes. You all know what the first vote is, and that's going to be one coming up here shortly. We all go to the polls, and we are, well, I don't know if everybody, well, not, let me take that back. Some people go to the polls. I think they say that half the people don't, don't vote. But that is one of the options that we have. We can go and vote for whoever we want in order to have good leadership. But the other two votes, for the most part, are not, readily known by most people, and that is you also have a very important vote when you're on a grand jury or a trial jury. And when you're on a grand jury or a trial jury, actually you have more power than the president, the Congress, anyone else in the, in the government because 
you are going to decide whether a person is uh, guilty or not, whether they are to be punished or not. And I gave you several Supreme Court cases whereby it explains that we are not to judge only the facts of the case, but actually the law itself. So this is the last safeguard against tyranny because if someone, if you're, let's say you're on a, a trial jury and someone is being tried and they're guilty of breaking a law, but your conscience dictates that this is an unjust, unfair, unconstitutional law, then you can vote not guilty based on the fact that the law is, is wrong. You see, that's the people having their say in that context, even though uh, many times they're instructed not to do so, uh, we have to go by our conscience. So uh, those are a, a couple of the safeguards that we saw. Now, in verse 6, it says, For because of this, that is because... It's necessary for us to be in subjection, not only for uh, because of wrath, but also conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. This is the third time in these seven verses, actually up to here, six verses, that the Scriptures are emphasizing that the those who are the rulers are servants of God. This is a different word, however. This word is liturgos. That's L-E-I-T-O-U-R-G-O-S in the Greek. And it comes, it's a, it's a compound word. It comes from that of the people. That would be uh, the laitos. L-E-I-T-O-S, and then you add ergon to that, which means work, so it means one who does work for the people. And that would be our um, the leaders in government that are doing a job for us, and we rightly see that we are bound to support them because this is how they make their living. They don't have time to... Um, be a full-time government service in government service and also another uh, job. So the Bible says it is right for us to uh, support them, you know, support them even with our taxes. And then I, I made the, uh, a, a note that levying taxes is a serious business. Many wars have been fought over taxes. It certainly was a factor in the first war of independence, which is sometimes called the Revolutionary War. It was also a factor in the second war for independence, which some mistakenly call it the war between the states uh, or the Civil War. Thomas Jefferson said, quote, to compel a man to subsidize with his taxes the propagation of ideas which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. However, we're going to get the next in our... Our next verse here, in just a moment, we're going to see that we have this uh, issue of uh, taxing and custom and so forth uh, continues. The last phrase in that verse 
says, devoting themselves to this very thing. So rulers are to devote themselves to serving as God's agents, praising those who do good and punishing those who do evil. This is what the governing authorities do. Now, verse 7. Render all, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, the first phrase, render to all what is due them, the word render is the Greek word apodidomi, A-P-O-D-I-D-O-M-A-I. It's an aorist active imperative. And it means to give or to do something necessary in fulfillment of an obligation or expectation. Now, this verse does not command us to give an unlimited amount but rather places a limit on what is due them. We are commanded to give what is due them, nothing more and nothing less. Samuel Adams said in 1771, uh, we think we have, I don't know whether you do, most people think that we have exceedingly high taxes and a lot of them. Well, this was the case also in 1771 because Samuel Adams said, quote, the people are paying the unrighteous tribute in hopes that the nation will at length revert to justice. But before that time comes, it is to be feared that they will be so accustomed to bondage as to forget they were ever free. The next phrase says, tax to whom tax is due. And the word tax there is Pharos, P-H-O-R-O-S, it's an accusative singular masculine. It means a date or tribute, excuse me, a tax or tribute imposed on persons and their property annually in distinction of telos, T-E-L-O-S. Telos is our next uh, word, which is can be translated custom or duty. So pharos is different from telos, which means a toll, which usually was levied on merchants and travelers. So we are to pay the taxes we owe. No doubt about that. The next phrase, custom to whom custom. Now again, this is telos, and it too is a, this is an accusative singular neuter. It means a toll, a custom, an indirect tax on goods. I just came in from outside the country and when you come in there you have to go through uh, customs and in the customs they look at what you have to see if any of it has to be a, a tax on a certain thing. I wish that wasn't so mainly because I didn't have anything to declare but there were 3,400 people uh, standing in line to go through customs and that was uh, at the very end of the trip and that's not the fun the funnest thing to do is stand in a terminal, concrete floors, concrete walls, and you have 3,400 people moving about two feet at a time, and you have to carry your baggage and set it down every time. And Anyhow, uh, we're talking about something that's not so fun no matter how you slice it. Uh, a toll, you know what it is, especially if you live in Houston or drive around Houston, they have toll roads and you, you have to pay a toll. The next phrase says, fear to whom fear. It means to whom fear is due. 
Now, the word fear here is phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S. It's an accused of singular masculine. And it means in a moral sense to fear, to reverence, to respect. We are to respect those who respect is due. And then the next, the last phrase here, honor to whom honor. Now, this word is timi, T-I-M-E. When you look at it in English, you think it says time, but in the Greek, it's timi, T-I-M-E. And it's an accused of singular feminine, and it means honor, which one has by reason of rank and state or office which he holds. Now, there are times when people hold an office, a place of authority, who are actually void of any character and this is to honor their position and not necessarily the person in the military i understand that you salute anyone who is a superior officer well not all superior officers have that character that you would honor but you still honor that position governing authorities who are servants of god for good should be supported by the people the people they serve, and they deserve respect and honor for being good servants to God and the people. Believers are to be balanced in their thinking and should have a humble, respectful attitude towards everyone, and especially those who are in positions of authority. You got that? Now, this next sentence is very important. However, this does not mean that we are to be unthinking robots who have no right to modify their behavior when circumstances develop that threaten their welfare. So we, as, as, a, as a rule, we are to be respectful to everyone, especially to those who are in authority. We should be humble. However, sometimes circumstances change, as they did in... Germany, and there were times when honoring the king uh, did not mean submission to the king or to the president or dictator, whoever they are. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah chapter 15. God is not happy with His people. The first part of this chapter, you have God saying that even if Moses or Samuel were to stand before me and plead your case, it would do you no good. God was about to pour His wrath out on these people. And He says those that are destined for death will go to death. Those who are destined for the sword to the sword. And He goes on. He's talking about famine. He's talking about um, we'll just look at verse 3. And I shall appoint over them four kinds of doom, declares the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, and the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. This is serious business. God's retribution is about to fall on them. 
Now, verse 4 is where, we, where we're really going to concentrate on what is said here. Verse 4. And I shall make them, them, <coughs> excuse me, uh, well, first of all, and I, this is uh, God speaking through Jeremiah. He's talking about himself. And I, God, shall make them, that would be the people, an object of horror among all the nations of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Now, Manasseh was arguably the, most, the, the worst, most evil, vile king they ever had. So he says, I'm going to make them, the people, an object of horror among the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, look at this, for what he did in Jerusalem. Underline that part, for what he did. If God held the people responsible for what the king did, then surely God expected them to resist him rather than to submit to his evil acts and turn a blind eye to his wickedness. Throughout the ages, men have had to decide whether to submit to evil and do as they're told or to resist and do what is right. God holds us responsible for what we decide in all of these issues. So what is a person to do? Uh, What I'm pointing out, I'm showing you Scripture that shows that God held the people responsible for what their evil king did because they went along with the evil. They did not resist the evil. There's a similar passage or something that is pertinent to this. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. If you look at uh, chapter 12 and verse 10. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 10. Now, the situation is that Solomon had died and his son Rehoboam took over. And Rehoboam got counsel from different people. This is, this is the normal thing to occur when you have a king take over or a president or whoever it is. They seek counsel. And the older and wiser men said that he should be lenient on the people And the younger and dumber counselors said that he should be even stronger than his father was uh, against the people. And so we see in verse 10 that Rehoboam decided to go with the latter, the younger men, the dumber ones, and this is what he said. Now, he's just taking office, and this is his declaration. And you'll see, and we're going to read verse 10 and 11, this is the smartest thing to do. Verse 10, the young men who grew up with him, spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, you make it lighter for us. That's what the people wanted. However, the young people said, But you shall speak to them and say thus, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So he takes over. 
And he's telling the people, you, you're complaining because you think my father was tough on you? Wait till you see what happens now. Uh, you can see this. He took the wrong advice. So what were the people to do? Well, if you'll turn to verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. Now what happens, they said, Okay, uh, we might not be the brightest light on the tree, but we understand what's coming, what's in store for us. When he says to their tents, what he, what he said was they departed. This is the separation. This is when Israel broke apart. And they followed a guy by the name of Jeroboam, and, and they created the northern kingdom. The ones that stayed with Rehoboam were in the southern kingdom. And that was Benjamin and Judah. The tribes of Benjamin and Judah stayed behind and was under Rehoboam. And the northern kingdom... Their name was, the Bible refers to them as Israel. Now, before that time, Israel was a united group, all the 12 tribes. But because of what happened here, you have a, a 10 of the 12 tribes said, uh, okay, this is what you're going to do for us. Well, we're out of here. Now, notice, they didn't attack the king. They didn't try to foment a rebellion or revolution. What did they do? They just removed themselves from the tyranny that he said he was going to uh, uh, foist upon them. And so, uh, and we don't have God in any way here um, chastising them for doing this. Now, if they would have attacked the king, if they would have had a revolution, God would not have blessed that. But they, they formed another nation. I think this is a parallel to what the South did when they decided to leave the tyranny that they were under and form their own nation. And they were required a number of times. And so really, when you, if you know anything about him, uh, he was a murdering, traitorous dictator. Right in there and follow. They did the great illustration of God's conscience and doing what authority. We are the products of our the declaration of the common starting with that because there are people the lawful means in order to maintain their freedom. When that happens, some people will bring up certain ideas. I just have a, this portion labeled, uh, what about the first century churches? Because there are people who say, okay, well, if you look at the first century churches, uh, they did not challenge uh, the rulers over them, and they were essentially... Um, pacifists and this is what I, the note I have on that some people point out that believers of the first century church at times submitted at times submitted to what was oppressive and abusive authority by the Roman Empire therefore shouldn't we follow their pattern and also submit to oppressive authority in our day well the problem with this is that it's not a fair comparison it's, it's tantamount to comparing apples and oranges it should be noted that the Jews were under occupation by Rome and had 
no contract, constitution, or agreement with Rome recognizing their rights. They were a conquered people. And the way that you would function under a conquered, after being conquered, is different than what you would do under a free society, especially one such as ours where it's a, a republic and you have uh, certain ways that you can deal with, with tyranny. It should be noted that the Jews were, were under occupation and that they had no constitution or bill of rights that they, in which their God-given rights are protected. Since every official in government as well as those in the military take an oath to support and defend the constitution, they are accountable to God and the people to obey those oaths. And so what we're looking at is that they were under a completely different set of circumstances than we are. And so and people also, they point to, to certain uh, people. For instance, some say that Jesus never resisted governing authorities, so neither should we. First of all, that's not exactly a correct statement. You hear what I said. Some would say, well, Jesus was a pacifist and he... He, there was never a time that he resisted governing authorities. But I'm saying that's not exactly true because the scribes who were lawyers and the Pharisees represented the governing authorities directly over the Jews and on several occasions Jesus resisted or refused to obey them. They were the ones that were directly over him, over the Jews. Turn, if you will, in, to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 3. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when we eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you, do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And they're calling Christ to task because he didn't wash his hands. They, you know, when you walk through a cornfield and you're hungry, and you get a ear of corn, you can't turn around and automatically, boop, there's a lavatory there to wash your hands. And they were trying to find any little thing that they could to denounce Christ. And so he's setting them straight. Essentially, they were trying to impose upon him a tradition, which was not, we, we might say that's not right or it's not lawful. They're trying to take something that is, something to oppose on the people. However, he turned around and said, well, you're tra transgressing the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, just think of that. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. He is the God-man. And these Pharisees are going to be so presumptuous as to correct him because he has 
crossed the line with one of their little traditions. The Pharisees were alleging that Jesus' disciples were answerable to them for violating what actually was an illegitimate law. Jesus not only refused to instruct his disciples to submit to such an illegitimate law, but he rebuked the Pharisees for trying to impose such an illegitimate tradition or statute on the people as if it was part of the legitimate Mosaic law. That's what took place in that incident. In this rebuke and this incident, Jesus was demonstrating that a law is not legitimate because governing authorities passed it as such. Jesus did not require his disciples to submit to these governing authorities who were out of line. In Mark chapter 7, verse 9, he, Jesus, was also saying to them, the scribes and Pharisees, you neatly set aside the commandment of God, that would be being a servant of God for good, in order to keep your tradition. That They did that in order to oppose their own statutes and notions on the people. So here we have Christ rebuking those who were the governing authorities for imposing something on them that was not legal, it was not binding, it was contrary to the real law, which was the Mosaic law. Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees who were the civil authorities directly over the Jews. Uh, How kind is this? I mean, some people would say that he never resisted and never really went against the governing authorities. So he called the scribes and the Pharisees who had authority over the Jews directly. See, they, they... they had authority over the Jews, but they were, not, they were not in complete control because they were under Rome. Remember, remember when they were going to try Jesus and try to have him crucified? Remember, they couldn't do it themselves. They tried, but they had to go to the Roman ruler in order to get permission, or he had to be tried by Rome in order to be crucified. So they were the immediate authority over the Jews, but they weren't the ultimate authority over the Jews in the sense that they were occupied by Rome and they all answered to Rome to a degree. But of course, in reality, God is over Rome. He's over the Pharisees. He's over us. He's over all. So I want you to keep that in mind when you, when you hear this. I'm getting this from Matthew 23. You don't have to turn there. I'm just making a point here. Jesus called the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the civil authorities directly over the Jews, hypocrites, blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, and a brood of vipers. I wonder how many people would stick around if people were doing that today. I'm not encouraging rebellion. I'm not encouraging disrespect. I'm making a point that Jesus Christ was not a pacifist. He did not just acquiesce to everything that came down the line. He is the ultimate independent thinker. He is 100% always righteous and just. And he's never made a mistake ever, and he never will. This is a quote that I got from... uh, Uh, Chuck Baldwin that 
that addresses this issue. Quote, in Acts 17, the Christians were accustomed, excuse me, accused of criminal acts. In Acts 17:6, we read that they had turned the world upside down. In order, in in other words, they challenged the basic assumptions of the pagan culture. But what was their crimes? Acts 17:7 tells us, quote, "These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus." This was contrary to the Roman law. This was an act of political treason, a popular myth involved by uh, Christians and non-Christians alike to justify their refusal to stand against an immoral state has the assertion that Jesus and the apostles were pacifists. This is not true. The question of pacifism did not arise, but Jesus was certainly no quietist. Jesus himself felt free to criticize not only the Jewish civil leaders in John 18:23, but also the Roman appointed ruler Herod Antipas in referring to him as a quote fox in Luke 13:32. Jesus whipped the money changers and chased them out of the temple in John 2:13 through 17. Following that, Christ would not allow any person to carry any vessel through the temple, Mark 11:16. Christ's act of whipping the money changers and blocking the entrance to the temple were crimes. Ultimately, Christ is portrayed in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation as exercising righteous vengeance on the secular humanistic state. End of quote. Most of the time you see Christ depicted as some type of wimp. He was anything but a wimp. Now, he was not a revolutionist. He was not a rebel rouser. What I'm trying to show you is that he was the ultimate in what is right, and he did not acquiesce to everything that the civil leaders over him tried to impose. The apostle Peter went along with other apostles, and understood this when they refused to submit to governing authorities, demanding that he stop teaching the Word of God. Now turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 29. Acts 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. That would be Christ's name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and, in, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, make them responsible for his crucifixion, that is. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than man. The Lord Jesus Christ was on a mission to get the cross, to get to the cross and pay for the sins of man, mankind. Many Jews wanted him to bear, uh, excuse me, to be their 
leader and deliver by deliver them by uh, crushing the tyranny of Rome. But that was not his mission. Jesus could not be distracted from his mission to redeem mankind on the cross by getting embroiled in resisting unjust treatment from Rome. You understand what this is saying? Jesus did not come to earth in order to right the wrongs that were imposed on the Jewish people by a government that didn't even recognize him to begin with. He was on a mission, first of all, to get to the cross to pay for our sins. He was also on a mission of offering the kingdom, his kingdom, to the people. So that my next paragraph or next sentence here has to do with that part. Jesus Christ offered himself and his kingdom to the Jews, but they rejected both. Why would Jesus make an issue of an earthly king and kingdom when he was offering to set up his own perfect kingdom? He had bigger fish to fry. He wasn't there to right the injustices of a kingdom. He was setting up his own kingdom, or at least he offered it. It was a legitimate offer. And we know through the Scriptures that they not only rejected the kingdom, they rejected him also. But it was an offer. So when people say, well, Jesus didn't uh, make an issue of Rome and all these other things, well, of course not. That was not his mission. It wasn't about that. Well, I don't know whether I should get into this next section or not because our, our time is already up. I guess I'll just introduce it. I think next Sunday probably will be the end. I thought this Sunday might be, but I keep uh, uh, seeing things that need to be addressed. Uh, The next heading, and this is where I'll start next Sunday, and we'll probably conclude next Sunday. But there are false allegations that anyone who would try to do something to stand for their freedom, to resist tyranny and that type of thing, are actually accused of trying to bring in the kingdom. In other words, there there are people that do that. Um, the Mormons, for example, uh, they believe that they, by their own good works, are going to bring about the millennium, God's kingdom. Well, we know that that just ain't so. We know that things are getting worse. They're not getting better. And that only Jesus Christ can right the wrongs that exist today. And there is going to be a time when he's going to... Um, take charge when it looks when it seems to be the worst time ever Jesus Christ is going to come back literally physically from heaven and set up his millennial rule he has the power to do so he has the right to do so and anybody else that tries to set up a kingdom by their own efforts is totally futile and it's against it's, it's not biblical but there are those who would allege that anybody who is trying to stand up for freedom and do what is right according to their conscience and resist evil or tyranny is trying to bring in God's kingdom. And I'm saying I think that is a, a, a false accusation against some. And I have a couple examples, very recent ones. One of them has to do with the recent Berean call, which many of you get. Uh, I'm going to address that. Also, some would say, well, we're, we're spiritual. We're heavenly people. We can't get enmeshed in the details of the world. Well, we have to look at that and see, is that, is that what we're doing when we're just trying to protect our families and ourselves from harm and our own welfare? There's still yet a few things to sort out, and I will address that next Sunday. In the remaining minutes that we have, I 
I ask that you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes because there may be someone here who does not know Jesus Christ. They haven't trusted Him and His work on the cross for their salvation. We are not of the earth, but we are on the earth, and we have issues to deal with. But the biggest issue that any of us will ever deal with is recognizing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that He went to the cross and paid for your sins. He died and was buried and resurrected, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. We don't know how much time we have. None of us do. So if you are struggling with this issue, I'm here to tell you that salvation is a free gift of God simply by faith alone in Christ alone. If you've made that decision or have any questions, I'd be glad to see you afterwards and we can discuss it. Now, Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to focus on these things. More than anything, we want to be right in your eyes. And we realize that we live in changing times. And it appears that they're not changing for the better. And we want to be good ambassadors and good servants to you and independent thinkers and not just follow the herd. So we pray that you will challenge us and help us to sort these things out so that we can indeed be good and faithful servants. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.